We are in John chapter 7, and as we read just a, just a moment ago, we'll start in verse 37, and we're going to work our way through the end of this chapter. And if there was a theme around this text this morning, it is, let the thirsty come. And uh, that is a very fitting theme, given that it's about 100 million degrees outside, right? Uh, if you've worked outside or played outside or had to walk outside at any point, uh, you probably became thirsty along the way. And so all of us understand uh, just that desire, that need for physical thirst. And I love uh, how Jesus takes the physical and he points us to the deeper, the spiritual, uh, because he's going to take physical thirst and communicate to meet our spiritual thirst. And uh, so the, the main idea of this, of this morning's message is that Jesus Christ offers salvation to all who thirst for everlasting life. And, uh, and so as we jump into the text, I, I, I want to take just a, a few moments to just get our bearings a bit. Because I mentioned just before I read a while ago that this is the grand finale, and it is. Uh, it is the grand finale of a very important feast that is happening in Jerusalem. And uh, in the, the time, uh, that time, the Jewish people, there would be three what were called pilgrimage feasts. And if you were a male that lived within a certain radius of Jerusalem, uh, the mountain city, uh, you were required to go, but everybody wanted to go. Everybody wanted to go to Jerusalem and to celebrate these feasts. And so this particular feast that, we're, uh, that we've been walking through in John chapter 7 is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also known as the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Shelters. And of all the feasts, uh, it is said that this was the most joyful of all the feasts. And basically, it was a big old week-long camp out. And, and it's even shared that the kids, this would be the kids' favorite festival because it meant that, hey, we're camping out all week. And so literally, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would not live in your home. You would build a booth. You would build a shelter and you would take branches. And so you would build a lean-to outside your home or on the, the, sea, or on the, the, the top floor of your home. Or if you're coming in from out of town, you would build a, a lean-to and you would sleep under the stars for an entire week. And, uh, and, and the whole purpose was it was to remember God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's providence for his people as he led them through the wilderness. His provision, his providence, his faithfulness. If you'll remember the great miracle of the Old Testament, God split a sea open. <laughs> they walked across on dry land. God gave them uh, leadership in a physical way in that there was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He called, he, he calls uh, wonder bread, like the real wonder bread, manna from heaven to, to nourish and sustain his people. When they were thirsty and cried out and there was no water to be seen, God made water come out of a rock. It was, it was amazing. And, and all of that culminated ultimately after 40 years and crossing into the promised land where they marched around Jericho seven times and the walls fell. It was, it was amazing. And so this, this festival was all about celebrating and remembering. And all through the festival, as they slept under the stars, just like their ancestors slept under the stars, uh, they would have ceremonies during the day. And one of those ceremonies was the, the, the temple priest there at the time would take a massive golden pitcher 
And he would march outside the, 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 the temple courts and he would go down a steep incline to a place called the Pool of Siloam. And there would be worshipers of God that would follow along with him. And he would go down each day and take this big pitcher of water and dip it into the Pool of Siloam. And then he would march it back up the steep incline to the temple. And as they brought it into the temple, he's bringing it towards the altar. And as they brought it toward the altar, there would be this large horn called a shofar. And they would blow this like ram's horn three times. And after they, 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 um, you, has your mind ever just gone completely blank on what a word is? They blow the horn. There it is. They blow the horn. And, and right after they blow the horn, the people shout scripture from the old Testament. They shout out Isaiah chapter 12, verse three, which says with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And after they shout that out, they would pour the water onto the altar. And it was all to remember how God provided water in the wilderness. It was amazing. But remember, this is the last day. This is the great day. So it's the grand finale. And so as they come up, the priest comes, they blow the horn three times. They shout the scripture with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. And that temple priest would walk around that altar seven times, remembering God's faithfulness, how they walked around the walls of, Jer of Jericho those seven times, and then there would be complete silence. And there would be complete silence, and as he would pour the water onto the altar, it was to remember God's provision of water through the rock in the wilderness. But don't miss this, every ceremony was not simply to remember, it was also to point toward the Messiah that would come, that would ultimately fulfill their spiritual thirst. And so it's in this grand finale moment that the Bible says in verse 37, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. I love that. He's, there's thousands upon thousands of people and it could be even in that moment of silence and the water is being poured out as a remembrance of God's faithfulness to provide that physical need of water in the, in the wilderness wandering, all the while pointing to the day that the Messiah come and Jesus is there in the flesh, the Messiah, the son of God. And he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In a very public way, Jesus is inviting all of those who have ears to hear. He's inviting them to be saved, inviting them to have their sins forgiven, inviting them to have peace with God, inviting them to have a relationship with God, inviting them to have life and to life to the full. And I love it. He says, if anyone thirsts, who's the invitation for every single person, every person, there were people from all areas that had come into Jerusalem for this feast. But it's for, as Revelation says, every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. That this gospel is for all people. I heard uh, this week uh, saying the kingdom of God is not a gated neighborhood. It's for the world. It's for everyone to come and place their faith and trust in Him. But this requires something uh, very humbling. And that humble act is that to have your 
soul thirst satisfied, it means that you need to acknowledge that you are a thirsty person. And that can be so hard for a a prideful heart to take that public step in acknowledging I'm thirsty. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in this public invitation, Jesus is inviting, if you're thirsty, come. And he says, come to me. This is why we see throughout history, public invitations. Christ is publicly inviting those to place their faith and trust in him. It was public. It was not done in secret. And so you can imagine this takes incredible humility to be able to step forward and say, yes, I am one of those thirsty souls that needs to be satisfied. That Jesus did not say, hey, come to good works and be saved. He didn't say, hey, come and try really, really hard. Just do your best. Uh, Come through trying your very, very best. Or he he didn't say, come to me through religious uh, ritual and religious ceremony. He simply says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. It is directional language. It is invitational language that he is inviting those to come to him, which calls for repentance. I love that word repentance. It's a change in direction to come to Jesus. That means you have to turn away from the world and self and sin that you turn from the world's way in order to come to Jesus, his way. And so it's this invitation. If you're thirsty, come to me through repentance But then he also says, if you're thirsty, come to me. And the Bible says, drink, drink. What's he saying? What's he saying? What's he communicating? To drink is to believe. It's to with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you place your entire weight, your entire hope, your entire confidence in Jesus Christ, in Jesus alone for salvation. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and believe and believe. They will be saved. I love this picture, this simple public gospel invitation of Jesus to anyone who has ears to hear. But we see not just an invitation to be saved. We also see an invitation to a spirit empowered life, an invitation to a spirit empowered life. Look at verse 38. Jesus is continuing his cry, which, by the way, I I know for many of us, you know, we have this gentle and meek picture of Jesus, like almost like precious moments picture and, and everything is quiet, and peaceful. And, and, and I, there are absolutely those moments, but don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that Jesus is crying, that he is shouting because of the passion and the love and in grace in his voice for the world to hear this message. He is He is crying out. And so he says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, Jesus had not yet ascended to heaven after the resurrection. That hasn't come yet. 
Uh, it will come. Matter of fact, six months from the feast we're reading about, there's going to be another feast. It's September, October. Well, in six months, it's going to be around April, and that's called the Passover feast. That's one of those other three festivals. And this will be the final march of Jesus's earthly ministry as he goes into Jerusalem as the true and forever Passover lamb, the one without spot or without blemish who would take away the sin of the world. And so that moment is coming. And after his, his death and his burial and his resurrection, he's going to pour into his disciples for 40 days. He's going to pour his truth into their lives. And then he's going to ascend. And Acts chapter 1 tells us about it. And here's what he tells his disciples. Basically instructs them to go to Jerusalem and have a prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, he sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus is communicating through this passage that, hey, believers, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to come once I am glorified, but I'm not glorified yet, but the Holy Spirit is coming. There's this great, awesome, encouraging biblical truth that Jesus is teaching that all believers will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so we are going to get to John 14, 15 and 16 in the weeks to come. And it's all about the Holy Spirit and excited to walk through that. But Jesus is helping them understand. He's giving them a preview of what's to come. You may have gone to the movies recently. And typically you try to get there early, uh, get your popcorn, get all that. What do you do? You go in the, you go in the movie theater, you sit down. Uh, hopefully it's one of those with reclining seats. So it's like extra, extra comfy as you watch the movie. But there are... There are things that play before the main feature. Anybody know what those are called? They're called previews. Previews. So think about the preview. What are the previews? The previews are completed movies that you're getting to get a snapshot of, but they're going to be released at a future date. So the work and the plan is laid out. The Holy Spirit will absolutely come and will empower His people to be a witness, but not yet. The Spirit is coming, and the Spirit will empower His people after His resurrection. But He says this, He says, Out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Living water in the Word is, is representative of eternal life. And I know we all agree that, that like, we have zero ability to give anybody eternal life. Like zero. We can't save anybody. We wish we could, don't we? We wish we could. We wish we could help people know Christ or, or save them, but, but we can't. But what Jesus says is out of the heart of the believer will flow rivers of living water. In other words, believer is not the source of eternal life, but out of the life, out of the heart, out of the overflow of the believer's life, the world will know where salvation comes from. And that is through Jesus. That if you think about it, like our lives are like a conduit or like a channel that the Holy Spirit works through to point others to Him, His love and His truth. I mean, if y'all looked really hard at this area up here, you would see wires, right? There's wire. You look close enough, they're all over the place. They're all over this building. If we went over to your house right now, you would have cords and we do our best to hide them and tuck them away so nobody sees them. But we, we all see these cords. But what we see is we see, we don't see the power, we see the shell. So there's this shell that carries the power source to whatever 
location it's going. And, and this is the picture that Jesus is painting. He's like, listen, for those who thirst and come and drink, believer, your, your life, out of your heart, out of your life are going to flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit of God will empower you to share his love and to share his truth with a world that desperately, desperately needs his love. That in a very real way, your life, believer, is a megaphone, a megaphone that is shouting a message to the world. And God's design is that the believer's life would be a megaphone to point the world to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter five, Paul lays out, maybe perhaps growing up, you, you memorized a song about the fruit of the spirit, but here's what the fruit of the spirit is. I love it. Galatians five, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That that is the fruit of the spirit. But in the world, we don't we see and keep an experience even in our flesh the complete opposite of that. What's the opposite? The opposite is hate and sadness and confusion and impatience and restlessness and meanness and evil, harshness, disloyalty, reckless living. That Jesus is saying this to those who believe and those who place their faith and trust in me. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit and against the backdrop of a broken world. And it is absolutely broken that it's against the backdrop of the world that the world will see the beauty of the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the faithfulness and the self-control that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is if you are a believer, the question is what message does our life communicate? Because all of us also know as believers that the Holy Spirit can be in our life, but maybe not ruling our life at any given moment. I think about the highway, you get out on a highway and you go, right? And if you veer off of the highway, there are these little grooves that are in the side of the road, right? And if you get off the main highway, you start feeling this, boom, 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 boom. right? You know those feelings. What happens? Like you, you, you maybe awaken or you, you, you kind of, you, what you do is you kind of guide back into the path. Because here is the truth that, that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit for a believer who is saying, you know what? I want to be empowered by the Spirit. I want to be controlled by the Spirit. When we bring our lives and yield our lives under the Holy Spirit's leadership, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to signal to us those areas that don't bring honor and glory to Him in an effort in His grace to guide us in a life that honors Him for His glory and for His mission. God wants to empower you to share his love and his truth. I think about our Honduras team. I think about this team of people who said, yes, I will go. I don't maybe know how it's all going to work out, but I trust the Lord has called me to go. And so I'm going to take this step of faith and I'm going to go. And so why did they go? Well, we just read why they went. 
Because God loves this world and He wants to use His people empowered by the Spirit and controlled by the Holy Spirit to share His love and His truth with a world that desperately needs His love. So God help us as believers to, as Bill Bright calls it, spiritual breathing. It's like this, uh, we, we breathe naturally. It's a part of our lives. It's necessary. And so when we spiritually breathe, we, we exhale confession and sin and we inhale God's grace and God's peace. It's just this picture of this, this walk with the Lord that God desires to use us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Some of your translations may say, but be controlled by the Spirit. And so he's drawing on an, an imagery that maybe we've seen. If you've ever seen someone who is drunk, they are, we call it under the influence. That means that they are not under the influence of themselves, that they are living under the control of another substance. And so what Paul's is saying is like, don't be drunk with wine, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, be in control of the Spirit of God, living a yielded life, surrendered to Him, that He desires to use you in a powerful way. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in the fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. May we live a Spirit-empowered life. So we see this invitation to be saved. We see this invitation to an empower, a Spirit-empowered life. But we see another observation, and that is this, is that the gospel invitation is at work in a broken world. We do live, I mentioned, in a broken world. It does not take long to see the brokenness. The world was broken then, the world is broken now. That there are people who have all kinds of responses to Jesus. Some are hostile to Jesus. Some love Jesus. Some are indifferent to Jesus. And I want you to think about this because the multitudes are around Jesus in this setting. He's crying out to them. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Wants to use believers to point to his grace and his truth and his love and his gospel but I want you to think of the different eyes that he sees looking back at him. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. And so he sees these people that he loves so much. And in their eyes, he sees eyes that honestly, there is a murder plot to kill him. He is looking into the eyes of people who are plotting to kill him. And he's inviting them to come. He's looking at the through the eyes of people in the crowd that are seeking. They don't have a relationship with him, but they're open. They're seeking truth. And so the seekers, he sees the eyes of the seekers. He sees those who believe in him and who do place their faith. The Bible says in John 7 that many of them did. They trust in him. But he also sees in the eyes of those that are looking at him, he sees the indifferent. He sees those that honestly want him to kind of wrap things up because it's the great day. It is the last day of the festival, but they got to get their booth down and they got to get back to wherever they traveled from. He sees all the different reactions and the responses to who he is. And in verse 40, the Bible says that when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. This is really the prophet. Why are they saying that? Well, back in the Old Testament, 
Moses, who for many Jews was their favorite, their favorite person in the Bible, the Old Testament. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And so they're like, this is the one. This is the one Moses told us about. This is the greater Moses. This is him. This is the prophet. Others in the crowd, verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. These are the thirsty. These are those who know that they are in need, not just of physical thirst, but of soul satisfaction. Their soul thirst satisfied through a relation, through coming to him and believing. And so this is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a, it's a royal title that means Messiah. And so when they say Christ, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for our whole lives. It's the thirsty flock. And then it goes on to say in verse 41, but some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And this is the heartbreaking part of the text, I believe, because you have a group of religious people who are so staunchly and stubbornly, hard-heartedly, not even open to consider the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. They are just, they have made up their minds to reject Christ altogether. They say, isn't he, isn't he from Galilee? The Messiah is going to come from, is going to be come from Bethlehem, from David. But, but if they would just take a little, a few moments and do a little bit of evidence searching and seeking. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, the city of David. He's of the, the lineage of King David. Just a little bit of seeking, a little bit of evidence searching and understanding they would see, but they have, they have made up their minds. They are absolutely and staunchly opposed to Jesus. They are filled with pride and they are filled with prejudice. They are in Judah in the south. Galilee is to the north. Gal or excuse me, Judeans in the south in Jerusalem, they looked down on people from Galilee. They saw them as backwards people, redneck people, uh, unsophisticated, uneducated, don't have the ability to, to understand and, and hang with the, you know, the, the, the elites, the intellectual elites. And they have just all together just turned their hearts against Jesus. And here we see for the third time in chapter seven that they're going to arrest him. They're going to arrest him. But here is a great reminder is that God's timing is perfect. Everything is running right on schedule. This whole like attempt to murder plot to to arrest him. Guess what? It's not going to happen. Why? Because it's not his hour yet. His hour is going to come in about six months and they'll carry out their murderous plot all the while fulfilling the perfect plan of God to bring salvation to the world. But here they are and they are scheming. They are scheming. Verse 45, the Bible says that the officers then came. So these are the ones that they, they sent to arrest Jesus. The Pharisees 
uh, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Like, what's the deal? You're supposed to go get him, come back. This should be an easy task. And I love the answer of the officers. And I wish I could hear the tone that they said it. I wish I could be a fly on the room when they said it. But listen to the words of the officers. They say this, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke like this man. Like they went with a purpose to seize him and to arrest him. That's what they do. They're officers. But they got there. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He says, they went to arrest Jesus, but Jesus arrested them. They were, in abs they were absolutely awestruck. They could not believe. Who is this man who speaks with authority and power? I mean, we've heard other people teach. We've heard other people share these scriptures, but, but it's, something's different. And what's different is, is that God has come in the flesh and he is communicating his gospel to the world. And they are completely disarmed by it. So they come back. They come back to the Pharisees in verse 47. The Pharisees answer them, have you also been deceived? Okay, you're duped too. Verse 48, have any, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You know what he's saying? He's saying these people putting their trust in him, they're just common people. They're not like us. They're not like important people. None of the important people have believed. Why are people giving into this? And why are you giving this? And they say, what authority? This Pharisee is like, who of us, who of us have trusted in this Jesus as the Messiah? And in their mind as superior intellectuals, they've all rejected him. So they think, and this is, I love this part. They think all of the religious elite, all of the religious intellectuals have rejected Christ, but not everybody, not everybody. Because there's a famous verse that if I quoted it right now, it's from John chapter three, verse 16. I could say just a little bit and you could probably finish it up. But it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have ever lasting life. Sounds a whole lot. Sounds very, very familiar to what Jesus has just said. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. But Jesus had this conversation with a superior religious elite at an evening hour in John chapter three. Does anybody know who Jesus was talking to in John chapter three? I heard it. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of them. Nicodemus knew that Jesus, how could someone do what he's done? They knew he was from God. The gospel seed that Jesus planted with him on that evening conversation just continued to water. And so what we see is that if there was a spiritual person award, Nicodemus would win it. If there was a religious person award, Nicodemus would win it. Scholars say that Nicodemus was the most revered and respected 
Bible teacher in the entire region of Israel. And yet here we see Nicodemus for a second time in the Gospel of John. And here is what Nicodemus does. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, we just mentioned that, and who was one of them, one of the religious elite intellectuals, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We have no evidence that after Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, that Nicodemus at that point became a believer in the Lord Jesus. But what we can absolutely be confident is by the point of this text that we're reading, that God was doing a work with that gospel seed that is placed in his heart. And even at this moment, we don't know. We don't know if Nicodemus was a believer at this point of the story, but we know that God is working on his heart. <laughs> and we see this religious leader ruler speak up. And maybe not so, so boldly in the moment. But he basically says this. He says, who condemns a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And so what he does is he is building space in for God's plan to continue to work. And he speaks up. And as he speaks up, the, the people, they turn on him. Like his own people turn on him. It's, it's really, really sad. But even Rome didn't condemn a man until he was heard. And so look at the spiritual blinders. They, they don't even care what their own law says. They just want to get rid of Jesus. And so they're just, they're just going for him. And so they, they turn. They turn on him. And in verse 52, and we'll wrap up here this morning. But in verse 52, they reply, are you from Galilee too? Like they just, they're just turning on him to Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And they turned and they, they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to see. They made up their minds. They even, they even said, they even said, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, there again, if they would... Just do, they would just examine the evidence that was before them. There were other prophets that were from Galilee region. One of maybe your favorite Old Testament books is called Jonah. And you know where Jonah grew up? Jonah grew up about five miles from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus, his home base for ministry, he grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but home base for ministry was Capernaum. And if you sound it out, Capernaum, Nahum, the prophet of the Old Testament. Capernaum means home of Nahum. So there's, there's other prophets, but they had made up their mind. They had made up their mind that they were not wanting to see their spiritual need for Jesus. And so we see the amazing evidence that is brought before them. And yet, it's amazing that you can refuse truth when your mind is bent on evil. So they're locked in on evil. But there is a great encouragement that is here. And the great encouragement is that I mentioned that a gospel invitation is at work in our broken world. God's gospel is at work all around the world. There will be those who reject. And there will also be those who receive. 
And so I, I want to I encourage us all by this, because here's what I know, that in this room right now, there are people who are incredibly burdened that someone they desperately love is not in a relationship with Jesus. And so the encouragement is this, never give up and never stop sharing and never stop praying. That never, never stop praying for your daughter to come to faith. Never stop praying for your son to come to faith. Never stop praying for your brother to come to faith. Never stop praying for your sister to come to faith. Never stop praying for your mother to come to faith. Never stop praying for your father to come to faith. Never stop praying for your cousin to come to faith. Never stop praying that those people that are in your classroom come to faith. Never stop praying that those people that you work with, live, work, and play, come to Him. Never stop praying for the boss that maybe seems so distant from God. Never stop. Why? Because, because this is not the last time we see Nicodemus. There's a third time we see him. We saw him in John chapter 3. And we saw him in John chapter 7. We're going to see him again in John chapter 19. And it is by this point with all of my heart that I believe that Nicodemus has placed his faith and trust in Messiah, in Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of his life. And watch the amazing transformation that happens. From John chapter 3. Now we don't know for sure why he met at night, but we know he met at night when nobody else was around. It was a private meeting between him and Jesus. The gospel is working on his heart, working on his heart, working on his heart. John chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and Nicodemus processing the gospel and, and processing the moment, he speaks up and creates this space of, of not arresting and laying hold of Jesus, but rather giving due process and, and kind of like speaks up and then kind of pulls out. But here's what's amazing that happens in John chapter 19 is that after the crucifixion of Jesus, many people know that there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And that he was a man of wealth, a man of means, and that, that, that he took the crucified body of Jesus and, and placed him in the, his borrowed tomb. But John chapter 9 tells us Joseph of Arimathea was not by himself, but Nicodemus was with him. And so from, from a private meeting in secret, when perhaps nobody else knows, to the most renowned religious leader of all time, carrying the body of a crucified Jesus. We see that Nicodemus came to this place where it did not matter who knew. It did not matter what other people thought. It didn't matter what the other guys in rabbi school thought about him. But he had come to that place where he had a personal, life-giving relationship with Jesus. And it didn't matter who knew. Don't say that in a rude way. It's just his love for Jesus. And so the encouragement here for the believer is never give up. Nicodemus? I'm sure believers wrote him off a long time ago. There's no way. No, there is always a way when the truth of the gospel and the love of the gospel and a faithful witness empowered by the spirit of the gospel and God using people and circumstances all in a way to get their attention, to share his great love for them. Never stop praying. Never stop praying. 
And then also the encouragement for us as believers is Jesus says this, his plan for you is that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, this gift of salvation, this gift of grace, this gift of forgiveness, guess what? It doesn't stop with us. Like we, we are as believers, we are the recipients of forgiveness, recipients of grace, recipients of his love, recipients of salvation, recipients of life and life to the full, recipients of eternal life with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But what Jesus is saying is like, listen, believer, the goal isn't that it stops with you. The goal is that through your life, that out of your life and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, continue to point that Jesus is the only source of salvation and to continue to share his love and his truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us be reminded that the, the gospel doesn't stop with us, but rather God desires to use you as a channel, as a conduit, that, that our, our bodies, we're, we're, a, we're a cover so that the Holy Spirit of God can share his love and truth with the world that he desperately, desperately loves it. He is crying out above the noise to bring salvation. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. And then a final thing I would say is as public as Jesus gave the invitation on that day. Like, think about it. Like, there was no like kind of hymn in the background or, or music in the background or like, you know, like everybody, like he just says this. He says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so it is this very public invitation. Because here's the thing, a thirsty person knows when they're thirsty. Thirsty person knows when they're thirsty. Tried all these different things, places, experiences, and all of them leave me unsatisfied as wanting more. That's why it's because you were created for one relationship that alone can bring soul satisfaction, and that's a relationship with Him. And so today, I encourage you, if you are living apart from a relationship with Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and believe. I will give you life. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. There's no better time than right this moment to give your life to Jesus and to begin a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, I pray as we have just lived in your word here, God, that your Holy Spirit would bring delight for the believer, would encourage us through the testimony of Nicodemus. God, that we would never stop praying for people to come to know Jesus. God, even if they may seem so far away, the fact that with your gospel truth and your Holy Spirit power at work, God, that we would see those who we deeply care about come to faith in Jesus. And God, I pray for the believer that as we yield our life under your spirit, God, that perhaps we have lost our joy. Perhaps we have lost our sense of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. God, your Holy Spirit, it's like getting on the side of that highway, uh, your Holy Spirit graciously convicting us 
that you desire to use our lives as a channel, as a conduit to point others to you. So God, in those areas that we have not honored you, may we confess, may we repent, and God, may we embrace, God, your Holy Spirit controlling and leading our lives to honor you. And God, I also pray for the thirsty soul who is living apart from a relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation. That if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we close. We're going to have a song of response. And uh, just so you know, the, the altar is always open. Always open. We have pastors here who will be here. We'd love the opportunity to pray over you, serve you in that way. That would be a blessing. And then also that if there's anybody here who's like, you know what? I am thirsty. I'm, I'm one of those that I'm a thirsty soul. And, and, and I want someone to pray with me. I want to walk along somebody. What does it look like to begin a relationship with Jesus? I want to invite you to come. And that there is no greater decision that you could ever make than to give your life to Jesus. And so as the Spirit would lead you, whether that's in praying there and making an altar right where you're at or here, just being sensitive and obedient to however the Lord would lead you this morning.